This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello, and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled, an Acadia company. And today I'm joined by Celia Van Wickel from Kantar Retail. So Celia is Kantar's e-commerce and digital commerce expert, leading syndicated insights focused on digital commerce trends, including last mile delivery players and Amazon. Celia is an insights veteran who has focused on shopper and omnichannel insights in her time with cars.com, Walmart, Lowe's, and Mattel. Prior to Kantar, Celia was with Coca-Cola, where she was the e-commerce insights lead, influencing e-commerce, D2C, and digital food service strategy. Celia has been quoted in various industry publications, such as Grocery Dive and Business Insider, and is an active contributor on LinkedIn, focused on the latest digital commerce news. Welcome to the show, Celia. Hi, Kiri. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah. So we've already kind of dived into your background, but tell us like a little bit more about your current role at Kantar, how you all work with brands there and any other of your sort of past history that you want to provide a little bit more color on. Yes. So in terms of my current role at Kantar, as you referenced, I really have the opportunity to work with leading brands and retailers and other kinds of companies as well. So just we have some tech companies, some electronics companies, and we're really there as their syndicated retail arm, but also a consultant to their business. And so we're working with, you know, the top, you know, 100 companies out there and helping them understand the trends that are going on in the retail space. So my particular area is focused on digital commerce trends. And so what that means is that I'm really helping people understand some of the big picture topics that are out there in the marketplace, as well as some of the strategies of how to work with companies like Instacart and Amazon. So, you know, One of those areas that we're going to talk about shortly is retail media, but I also look at last mile delivery, metaverse, D2C strategy. So these are all things that we are helping our clients understand, and we'll also work with them directly in engagements to understand and talk about how these apply to their business. Yeah. And prior to that, we talked about, I'll just talk a little bit, a little bit about Coca-Cola. So I was part of Coca-Cola's North America division, where I really work closely with their digital commerce organization, which is now called O2O at Coca-Cola. And so I was really working across all of the e-commerce businesses, whether it's working on capabilities planning, performance measurement, understanding the shopper and the behavior for Coca-Cola. So, you know, how do we think about digital shelf? What matters in assets? How is the baskets changing? How do we understand modality? Are we winning share? Why are we winning share? How do I activate e-commerce and category leadership with a retailer? So these were all the things that I've been focused on and kind of touched throughout my career to kind of think about digital and omni-channel. Even when I was at Lowe's as early as 2014, 2015, we were thinking about omni-channel strategy. How do we personalize? How do we use technology to create better experiences for those shoppers? So you were recently involved with putting together Kantar's Digital Commerce Conference. And as I understand it, retail media is one of the topics that came up. Tell us a little bit, maybe firstly, about that event. And then what kind of questions do brands and retailers have about retail media? 
Yeah. So digital commerce event has been in retail media. I've actually had clients tell me that exact language, right? They're still struggling to understand this. And they really don't have interconnectivity of their teams to understand retail media. You have shopper teams siloed from media teams, from e-commerce teams kind of playing in this space. And so we're kind of seeing some things similar to the early days of e-commerce where people don't know the language, they don't know how to work together in this space, and they don't have the expertise in-house to understand the space. So, you know, brands are trying to do this. You know, some of the leading brands are starting to make headway in connecting with teams and the language, but they're still not connected. So as it's kind of an analogy to e-commerce. So we have to think about where's the expertise in the organization? What teams do we need to align from brand to media to sales to make these teams more impactful? So again, they just don't have this. The other shortfall is, you know, as you know, we talk about Walmart and Amazon, thinking about going for more media dollars, not just retail media dollars, you know, they have to think about what a brand is looking for. Right now, brand teams don't contribute heavily to retail media and their media mix because they're focused on the upper funnel. And I know, mm-hmm. Carrie, you're a big fan about this awareness building opportunity. And so, you know, brands, when they look for retail media, you know, when they're measuring their impacts, they're looking at impact studies, brand tracking, and marketing mix effectiveness. So, you know, brands are not getting, and we talked about that data from a lot of these platforms, unless they pay a significant amount to unlock those true opportunities to show the brand value. So again, and then the fact not only they're not unlocking that data, or if they are unlocking that data, the each retailer is creating their own standardization and of definitions and how things are measured, such as ROAS. So you can't even align that information together to look at the total addressable market. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. That's a big challenge. And especially in a world where brands are conceivably going to have lots of different retail media networks that they're managing, there is that desire, as you said, to have like one universal metric that will allow us to compare results across different media platforms. And that's not really what the objective should be because each of those media platforms have sort of a different value proposition and different sort of use cases that brands can be leveraging. This desire for a universal metric like ROAS has sort of been the default universal metric for a long time is a real psychological trap. Yeah. And when you think of traditional media, right, ROAS is something that has been created through retail media. And it has a lot of value, right? If we're looking at the value from lower funnel conversion, but we, you know, there isn't any standard on that, let alone our impressions all being measured the same way. You know, are we all thinking about reach and frequency in this space? How do I connect these for share of voice? You know, I need to understand my total share of voice. So when you buy digital media, you think about, do I have a hundred percent share of voice? Do I have 30% share of voice of the market? So right now there's this disconnect. You know, I think a lot about the IAB. So IAB has been that organization that's put standards on digital marketing, but there's no standards today for retail media. So the retail media, the retailers need to be mindful that IAB might step in because if this matures, it becomes digital and total media marketing, and it will have to have standardization. That's interesting. What do you think would need to happen for that to work for an IAB to come in? I think it's going to become, you know, IEB worked with a lot of, you know, brand marketers and media agencies and how they think about those standards. And so I think as media agencies get more mature and including retail media within their mix, I mean, again, there's some 
agencies out there that are leaders in that right now or are trying to get make themselves a leader in the retail media space. This one, they're going to have to start paying attention. Like as these media agencies are starting to buy retail media and put it in their mix, they're going to have to align it to the total IAB standards. And so I think it's going to be that call out from the industry that's going to have to set that process forth. That's how IAB started, right? Marketers complained that they couldn't get a true measurement. There was no viewable impressions, Mm. you know, so what is really reaching frequency? We need those things addressed and understood for the industry. And that's going to come through pressure from the leaders in media who work with IAB. Yeah, that's interesting. When we put together our retail media allocation report, my colleague Matteo and myself did a, a little bit of a comparison of how certain metrics are calculated across Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart, just as sort of like a basket of retailer ad networks that that we leverage a lot at Bobsled. And it is comparing apples with oranges in a lot of cases and actually understanding that the look back period or the attribution period for certain metrics is different across different retailers. And so you're not really looking at the same metric. And, you know, Walmart, even though they're going to sort of correct this, they have a first price auction compared to a second price auction format like other retail media networks. But even when my understanding is when they do shift over to second price auction format sometime this year, it's still not really going to be calculated in the same way as other second price auction formats. So it's just Mm -hmm. like you said, where's the standardization here? It's going to become more of a pressing issue as there are more and more platforms to bid on. Yeah, I agree. You know, well, we'll talk about this later, but you know, I think the whole, everyone being programmatic, it's helpful, but it is going to be hard to manage all those different auctions for different companies. Yeah. Anything else that you see in terms of, you know, ignoring or failing to act on right now from the brand side? So, I mean, I think some brands are better at this than others, but I think right now people should also be thinking about like any early stage opportunity that there's also testing and learning that has to happen within this space. And so, Testing and learning, you know, is ways to show the kind of the value in the organization and create your own business cases to understand how you're going to unlock the value of retail media. And so when you're going to test and learn, especially as new formats release, how is it going to help me within the brand? How am I understanding the value of this into there's creating trial, creating awareness, understanding conversion? So there has to be a little bit more testing and learning because, again, these new auction sites, new ad formats, new parts of the portfolio are coming in. And it's going to take a while to understand the true mix that will work for your brand or specific categories out there. And so we definitely see that there's kind of this disconnect there within the organizations. Yes, 100%. And there's some research that I'm working on with Russ Derringer from Stratably talking about test and learn. And of course, I've clicked out of my document where I had my research pulled up. But actually, maybe I shouldn't preview it because that report is coming out in August and I want people to sign up for it. But yes, test and learn is so important from an advertising standpoint as well. There's some data that our ad tech partner, PackView, pulled talking about brands who deployed new ad features within the first three months of them being launched, having a better overall total sales lift than brands who didn't actually test out new product features. So 
where can you get an, a just did an episode on a sort of separate but related topic around TikTok with one of my colleagues. And TikTok is one of those channels as well where it's fairly nascent. Eventually it will be pay to play like every other social media platform is now. But in the meantime, it's producing great returns. So you got to to be able to get any real edge, especially at a competitive sort of price point, you do need to get in early on these beta programs, on these new channels and try it out and accept that there's going to be some failures along the way. Yeah. At the conference, we had a panel on retail media and we had Alison Dempsey from PepsiCo. And something she said was really beneficial, right? They definitely believe in test to learn, but to do so mindfully within your budget. But what it can unlock is brand dollars, right? This is, again, the coveted thing for brands they're trying to find. They've been finding with this testing and learning mindset that they can capture awareness and drive trial, which can bring unlock those dollars that brands need to bring to the table. Hmm. Do you have any sort of rule of thumb around how much, like how much ad budget should be allocated to test and learn or how much of the budget or time and attention should test and learn take up? I can't give an exact number. I think it will depend on the type of asset it is. At the end of the day, it should be a small percentage of your total media allocation. So five, you know, maybe 5%, one or 2%, it just will depend on the comfortability. But there should be a small percentage allocated that allows trial of new assets. And maybe your trial starts with partners that you're more comfortable with. Like maybe you do trial with Walmart or you trial with Instacart because that's where you you know you already have other value or other ways that you're measuring the business. But it is to be mindful of like how much you're investing and like and not to put the majority of your dollars in one activation. Yeah, I completely agree. And what we find is if it's actually in the budget as a percentage, just, you know, as a reference point, like 10% of your budget always goes to test and learn, then that's kind of carved out. You don't have to argue for it every year. And then for things that do work, it gets moved over to your business as usual budget, but you always need to retain whether it's 10% or some other kind of number. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to like argue the case for new platforms every time one one kind of comes up that's interesting. Yeah. And the percentage matter depending on what kind of investments and what size of budget you have. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see a future where a mid to large size brand will be managing, let's say like a dozen retail media channels? So it's not really possible for a brand, whether you're large or small, to, you know, have the time or resources to manage a dozen or more retail media channels without at least a minimum hiring an expert of team to focus on that area or working with an agency partner, especially with all the programmatic platforms that are rolling out, all these DSPs, you know, you need someone who's going to understand how to manage that, but you're also going to need to coalesce a team that's going to know how to manage what a sales account team needs versus what a brand marketing team needs. And again, that education is just not there right now in the brand teams. What I'm hoping to see is this fragmentation really kind of be harnessed and kind of brought in because of the maturing of the media space. So if retail media does become media, as we've talked about, then, you know, we have to start thinking about, you know, leveraging things maybe more like an ad network does, where you have one buying system, one programmatic system, and you're buying impressions and spread across to reach a specific target audience for the brand or for the category. And so you'll be looking more holistically across retail media as a ad network and less so one-off retail media channels. That makes total sense. And one other thing that you mentioned in there 
that I'd like to dive into as well is this difference between brand and performance media. And I've heard a number of people say, you know, everything is a shopping opportunity now. So what was brand is now performance and performance is brand. And this sort of artificial construct that we've had around brand versus performance may have been true when brand was about, you know, TV and radio ads and performance was about coupons, right? But we're not really Mm -hmm. like now that retailers have become media platforms as well, what is the difference there? I'd love to hear your perspective on brand versus performance and if we're going to see that be less of a distinction in the future. I think there's no doubt that the two are blurring, but there's still going to be to think about the objectives of what you're trying to achieve for that particular brand or that particular campaign. So it might be, okay, if my you know objective is new trial of a brand, well, you are going to want to kind of leverage that full funnel of what those opportunities are, right? Do people know what the brand is? How do I make them aware? And then how do I also drive that trial, that conversion? So you definitely need to think about that. So your mix of upper funnel and lower funnel will have to kind of play into what your objectives are. But I think we're going from a more, as you indicated, right? I agree. We're going from a more siloed, like this is just a brand. This is just a activation where it's going to be part of the mix of what they look at and evaluate. And you're going to have to balance that mix to the activation of what the goal and the objective is of the brand or the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's not new for brands. Like you always have to think about a campaign, but the fact that I think these different goals and objectives are coming together as one objective and one campaign versus separated assets. I agree with that. One thing that I wonder about is from an organization standpoint as well, because let's say Amazon now, you know, has had performance media for a long time and now offers a lot of brand opportunities. And from an internal organization standpoint, as well as a budgeting standpoint, those come from different buckets. And I wonder how long, I agree with what you say completely, that you need to go back to the objective of the brand, of the product subset, or even of the channel. Like some channels are going to be more focused around awareness and building top of funnel awareness than others that might be more performance based for your brand or you know subset of products etc but you know bucketing things out and saying this is our brand budget and this is our performance budget you know they're run by different people with different processes for approval (laughs) that just seems like such a huge limitation to me for brands who want to actually you know move forward and participate in this ecosystem that's changing pretty quickly. There's a lot of small and mid-sized competitors who can move very quickly here and they don't have that construct that's so deeply embedded into a large company's P&L. But from everyone I've spoken with, no one has a good kind of solution for, you know, reimagining that org structure. It's very entrenched and quite difficult to sort of imagine a new setup. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's why I referenced earlier that this is kind of like the early stages of e-commerce where nobody knew how to set up a team or what to do. There's going to be learning curves and ways that that work or don't work. I don't know if like, you know, we can't completely take away promotional trade dollars from the sales accounts teams because you definitely need that. That might balance specific retailer needs and objectives as part of the joint business planning process. I don't think that part can completely go away. But I think there are ways to coalesce 
a good size of the dollars that are spent to more higher level objectives. And it will take putting dedicated teams who either are central function, like maybe starts with a central function that works across teams or changing the, sometimes sales accounts teams are now, you know, have going from marketing into e-commerce teams and vice versa to make this kind of alignment in their organizations for other e-commerce initiatives. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I think about that framework and what is the right organization here? Because I think we're in that same mindset of what e-commerce was, like we didn't know where to put it in the organization. Yep. But I agree to keep these dollar silos, especially if your Amazon account and your Walmart account is trying to have you go into, you know, offline media and other digital assets, well, you're now going into another space that is not beyond just managing your account and sales. Yep. Yep. So unfortunately, no silver bullets that we're able to call out on this show, at least. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have the crystal ball of the right organization today, but I think it's just you know, collaboration is going to be keyboard for anything that you want to make happen, right? So you have to bring willing partners along in the organization yeah. to make that happen. So maybe you have one account team and one brand team who really want to make this happen. And so maybe your Walmart team and, you know, this other brand lead team really want to think about how they can make them work together. And you can bring in your media team partners as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you just have to start with willing partners within the organization, again, to prove out what works and doesn't work. So Celia, on a more personal note, you're someone who is super active on LinkedIn. I love following your thoughts pretty much every day that you're sharing about the space. And a lot of people ask me this same question, although I don't think I'm quite as active as you on LinkedIn. How do you do that? How do you actually identify insights and go about sharing them so prolifically? (laughs) Well, I didn't start off doing what I do on LinkedIn. I around the pandemic starting, I just wanted to, you know, try to create a network. And so I would just post some industry news. And then, you know, I am and have always been an insights professional. So I started thinking about, well, what does this news mean? And could I say more about what's going on as a trend? And I also am a type of personality where I like to think big picture. So I'm always like, what if, what's next? How could this be? Instead of saying, no, this is not going to happen. So that's what I bring into the LinkedIn thing. So it's kind of evolved over time where now it's kind of more of a fluid part of what I do day to day on LinkedIn, where I love to read the new industry news. I soak it up every morning. I get up early before my kids bother me to read the industry news. And then sometimes I'm just saying, you know what, this is a big deal. This is a story that people need to understand. And does what I'm reading tell enough of what people need to understand of what's going on? Does it connect enough of the dots? And so that's how I approach what I contribute on LinkedIn is that to think about, is this the full picture? And what is that what if scenario? I love that because it's really adding to the conversation, like you said, not just kind of sharing what's going on, but asking those kind of critical questions of what needs to be true for this to actually happen or to be successful. What's the full picture? I love that. So I've got two sort of rapid fire questions for you before we close today. What have you changed your mind about recently? Quick commerce is one of those. Okay. Yes. Well, tell me more. (laughs) So I mentioned already that I am a big picture thinker. So when, you know, you had GoPuff expanding, Getir, Gorillas, 
again, you think about in the U.S. context, you know, I didn't think they were necessarily all going to struggle or fail as they are now. It's been so fast. In one year, it's been very up and down. I've always been very hopeful that these businesses are sustainable. Obviously, things are changing where it's very clear that the, you know, cash cost to serve in these business models is just not profitable. And the way that they're going about with dark warehouses is just not the right process. It needs to be automation. It needs to be more consolidated, you know, batching orders. And so it's not being quite what I had imagined it's going to be. 15 minutes is definitely a fad. But I think it has changed in like way I was optimistic about it is that it is training the sense of on-demand commerce and no more time slots needed, fairly quicker commerce, same day, you know, one hour or so or less. So I think these behaviors are changing. And what it really did do is change trip missions online, especially for grocery shopping. So for grocery shopping, it's always been a stock up trip for e-commerce. And now we're getting a different sense of types of trips. It's not just a stock up or a one-off purchase waiting for it to be shipped to my home. We're getting this true sense of traditional convenience mm. in these channels, but it does not just mean a convenience store, though that's way how it's starting. Mm. It can mean, you know, convenience for what I need at that moment in my life. Hmm. Interesting. You still see a future for quick commerce, but it's not necessarily a 15 minute future for everything. Correct. I don't think the 15 minute model works. And I think things are how they're going to work in the US are going to be different how they work abroad yeah. as well. There's much more modern trade here than fragmented trade. So it's been a little harder for these players to make their way with profitable models. Mm. What are you excited about? So again, my big picture thinking. So I definitely believe we're on a true digital evolution. Now, while there's some macroeconomic issues right now, like inflation and supply chain, they're slowing down some e-commerce and commerce initiatives. Things are still evolving, still a lot of test and learn in the space, but I have a secret passion for the metaverse. Now, I'm not Mark Zuckerberg Ooh. by any means when it comes to the metaverse. And it's not necessarily the term metaverse. I think it's the idea of what I see happening. I like to use my daughter a lot as an example. If some people follow me on LinkedIn, she gets mentioned occasionally. And I see a world where the virtual is emerging with the physical. Okay, whether it's NFTs exist, crypto exists, which is not doing so well right now, I don't know. I think, though, it's opening up this kind of more highly connected digital and virtual world that's changing into the next phase of digital commerce. And so it may not be all of commerce, but I definitely believe people will be interacting more and more in a virtual space and creating and transacting in commerce more and more in a virtual space. I agree with you. I think it kind of gets a little bit of a bad rap as being too futuristic pie in the sky but I think about my own sort of online habits and we're all multifaceted human beings right we have our interests that are pretty varied some are sort of more private interests and have like this sort of this future where we can be and behave in an environment that supports lots of different facets of our personality I think that that's where it's going to be most compelling. And like you mentioned, your daughter, and I've got a five-year-old as well. And I can just see the way that he is going to interact with the world, <laughs> you know, starting mm -hmm. from like the Minecraft generation or, you know, kids who are gaming now. It's such a, it's a vibrant world. And perhaps because we're, you know, we didn't have that exposure as children, it seems less natural and sort of futuristic to us. But for for children especially who are growing up with those immersive digital worlds, that's what they're going 
to expect. They're going to expect to transact in those worlds as well. Yeah, transact in those roles. I mean, the big thing right now we're trying to figure out the metaverse is if it could actually really be decentralized. That is a big challenge of making this true vision of metaverse come to life. But I think the whole aspect of the virtual and the immersive shopping is going to be something that holds, you know, akin to what Roblox and Fortnite and them are doing. Gaming is definitely one of those platforms to watch, but there's so much out there. I mean, even Amazon, who's kind of been a cynic a little bit on the metaverse, some of their leaders there, but they're doing AR virtual try-on for shoes. Mm -hmm. So there's things there that actually can help the shopping process and make you feel more connected. And what they really do, they're really great at the next wave of experiential selling. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's not just I'm having a store, I'm having, you know, immersive event store. Hmm. So I think there's different things that's testing and learning and hopefully changing from our boring tiles that we have in the e-commerce yeah. space and how we shop and pick products to something a little bit more interactive. That's a great point that I hadn't thought of that before, that Amazon's been really slow to adopt this, but you know what they keep trying to shove down everyone's throats is live stream shopping, live stream shopping. And it doesn't, I mean, I'm still optimistic that they'll kind of figure it out. And I actually, I'm going to do a post about this, but I've watched the best live stream shopping experience that I've ever seen. And I was truly engaged. I'll talk a little bit more about it later. So I think it can be done really well, but the initial experience of it has been pretty lame to be honest and a lot of people have dismissed it they're not really going to try it but the metaverse and what that metaverse shopping experience looks like could be a way more compelling treatment than live stream which is you know taking a model that was successful 40 years ago and trying Mm -hmm. to digitize it when actually the metaverse is here and people are interested in it, maybe it would be, you know, a good time to cut bait. And if if you ask any of the live stream major partners, they'll all tell you it's not QVC. And I think that's what people are, but unfortunately some videos are more like QVC than you you would like them to be. But they think there is a way to figure out how to do it more naturally, Mm -hmm. more embedded and more within the path to purchase. Because I think that's the thing, like right now Amazon Live is mostly a dedicated channel and they're not, they're starting to experiment with the path to purchase, but not really embedded in the path to purchase. And so it's not really, again, this natural part of shopping. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of, here's an entertainment channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Celia, thank you so much for joining us. Tell listeners where they can follow your work and also, you know, a little bit more about Kantar and how you work with brands there. Yeah. So please, you know, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn, Celia Van Wickle. It's a pretty unique name, V-A-N-W-I-C-K-E-L. I should learn to spell. It's, you know, my name is pretty unique, so I'll probably stand out and just search for LinkedIn. So, you know, please look me up. But also, you know, consulting by Kantar on LinkedIn is kind of our company facing. So sometimes stuff that I write for Kantar and my colleagues, my brilliant colleagues also get featured on there. So that's a great way to get exposed. But we you know there's always ways to look at our retail IQ is our core platform that we have our content in and you definitely will you can reach out and we'll have someone help you kind of get onboarded and you know be a client of ours through our syndicated platforms. Awesome. Well thanks for joining me, Celia, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.